going on there, Youth Workers? Paul Turner here from thediscipleproject.net and your host of the Youth Ministry of Motion podcast, the podcast that wants to keep you motivated and your youth ministry moving forward. How are you today, everyone? I hope that you're doing well. Keeping my introductions short today because this interview with Natalie Runyon could change your life. If you have been hurt by the church, if you're a youth pastor who the church has done you dirty, done you wrong, and you have all these kind of leftover feelings about religion or about church or even about Jesus, this interview is for you. And all of you are welcome here. I have gone through multiple layers of deconstruction, of church hurt, of religion, of church service, of all the things you can talk about. And in reading her book, it confirmed some things that I had already been thinking about, already kind of worked through myself, but it resonated with me, and I hope that it resonates with you. And listen, if you're brand new to the podcast, thank you for being here. Thanks for your time and your attention. Uh, this is quite the episode to jump in on, so hey, uh, hang on. It's, it's going to be phenomenal. And my hope is that you're going to enjoy this interview, you're going to learn from this interview, you're going to be inspired by this interview, that you want to hang around for future episodes as well. So if you enjoy it, be sure to go ahead and click that subscribe button. Before we get into the interview, though, I want to let you know that it is still Pastors Appreciation Month, and I appreciate you. And because I appreciate you, and because I know some of you are thinking about 2024 already, you're thinking about what kind of ministry do I want to have, but more importantly, what kind of youth pastor do I want to be, and even what kind of believer do I want to be. And that is why I am offering coaching. That's right. Ministry-minded coaching is a three-month coaching journey where I walk with you through the process of looking at your programs, your discipleship, your communication skills, your goals, your dreams, your visions for your youth ministry. I want to help you build a successful youth ministry, and I want to go on that journey with you. And because it's Pastors Appreciation Month, and I want to show my appreciation for you, I'm taking 20% off this three-month coaching journey that if you're interested in getting coaching, now is the time to do it. All you have to do is go ahead and purchase the three months. You put the words, coach me all together, coach me, and you will get 20% off your coaching. In addition to the two meetings, we'll have a month, 90-minute sessions. You're going to get books. You're going to get resources. And you're going to get my undivided attention to whatever it is that you want to work on as a youth pastor, as a staff member in your church, whatever it is you want to work on, I want to help you work through it. So if you're interested in this three-month journey and you want to improve, you want to skill build, you want to vent some days, that's okay too. I'm all here for it. All you have to do, there'll be a link down in the show notes. And when you check out, all you have to do is put in coach me in the code box and you will get your 20% off. I am looking forward to hanging out with you and working on the things that God's put on your heart so that you can build a successful youth ministry right where you are. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the interview today. Today, I'm interviewing Natalie Runyon. She's a pastor's kid turned pastor. She is the author of Raised to Stay. She is a worship leader, a songwriter, a teacher, a mentor, and the author of her brand new book, Raised to Stay, Persevering in Ministry When You Have a Million Reasons to Walk Away. Natalie Runyon, welcome to the show. Hey, it's so good to be with you guys. <laughs> hey, I'm excited. Uh, first of all, because I'm excited because I've, I've read your book, and so it encouraged me. And I'm also excited because... 
uh, you're going to share with youth pastors today some of those things that you've written about that is so, so desperately important that youth pastors need to hear about. And I, I just can't wait for for what you're going to share today. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So we discussed a little bit that in your youth ministry uh, that you've had a, a lot of different things. You've done a lot of different things uh, that you detailed in your book. And I'm wondering, uh, uh, you know, just for our uh, our youth pastor friends, uh, what, what were some of your your go-to games in youth ministry? Well, I was a product of 80s and 90s youth ministry, which I really yes. believe is the grossest uh, that we ever were because there were no food allergies. There were no like parents writing in. It was anything goes. I will never forget um, my very first job out of college was a youth intern at a non-denominational church up in Ohio. And I was the worship leader for this youth ministry. And they told me we were doing the game night and I was unprepared, hundred percent unprepared. Um, they did a game where they chugged gallons of colored milk. Gallons, oh they, they had to chug a gallon of, of food colored milk. No. And I am in the middle of the room watching these teenagers chug. And before I know it, there is food colored vomit coming out of these oh, children. No. And, you know, it was a free for all. It was crazy. It was chaos. People loved it. I, I'm still mystified. I still can't really drink milk, um, if I'm honest. But that was kind of the go to one in the uh, late 90s. And I got to tell you. I, I'm I maybe going to get any therapy later on in life after that. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, and listen, I, that was the and I remember that too. I don't remember doing that, but I remember that students always thought, well, how hard can it be to drink a gallon of milk? And apparently, they can barely get through a quarter of a gallon of milk. So <laughs> that is that is correct. But you know, especially young guys, they think, oh, no problem, we, <laughs> we can we can do this. All right, now that we have solidified your youth pastor credentials, uh, that. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, every youth pastor is listening. Uh, and by the way, uh, we don't necessarily recommend that you do this game. By the way, no. This is not a game recommendation, by the way. <laughs> this is a pastors. warning. This is a this warning. This is a warning. <laughs> Probably should stay away from that. It's it's impossible to drink a gallon of milk. So don't don't ask your students to do this. Otherwise, you'll be updating your resume. I'm just That's right. Now. <laughs> <laughs> not going to be tolerated okay <laughs> but uh now tell tell us a little bit about your background with the church i know there's some people believe it or not who have not read your book but surely should read your book but give them a little background with church and and because we're talking about being raised to stay we're talking about going through church hurt we're talking about those things but tell us why tell us a little bit about your background and maybe why uh you know raised to stay is the message that this this generation needs to hear about today. You know, I, I grew up in the church as a pastor's kid and my dad was not the traditional pastor. He didn't go to seminary. He wasn't a third generation pastor. He got saved through the Jesus movement. And so my early years of ministry were a lot of street ministry, a lot of evangelism explosion, uh, prisons and uh, going into soup kitchens and being on the streets in our city of Cincinnati. And so there was this beginning for us of learning that ministry was wherever the people were. You went where the people were. And my dad was so good at teaching us that, you know, nursing homes were ministry and, you know, going out and, and talking to people in the middle of the day was ministry. And when he finally took pastorates in the form of a church, that was really how our churches were pastored. We pastored for a love of the people rather than the size of the church or the denomination. And I grew up in the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee denomination, but my dad was really well known in our city for being able to go into churches that, that were 
maybe smaller or falling. And he was able to go in and really kind of create community that was based off of the Great Commission, going and making disciples. My dad was a discipler. And so when I got into high school, I wanted to be in ministry. I saw it with my own eyes, the beautiful fruit of being in ministry. And then my senior year of high school, one day we show up at the church we were pastoring and they say, today's it. You're, this is it. You're done. You're moving out of the church parsonage. The board met this morning. Today's the end of the road. And there was no warning. And suddenly this institution that I loved that was supposed to protect me was no longer protecting me. It was now betraying me. It was putting my family out on the streets. Um, And that really spiraled me from wanting to go into ministry and being a youth pastor and going to a Christian school, which I had already gotten into, to changing my entire life. I ended up at a uh, public university majoring in kinesiology, and I wrestled for the first time with my faith, with my relationship with God, with my relationship with God's people. And it felt like I had lost my identity like I had lost my purpose. And it sent me on a five-year journey to really discovering, do I believe what I believe? Do Was it my parents' religion or was it mine? And it was there in this public university. I met Jesus in a fresh way through a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. And throughout the last 20 years of my life now, I have had secular jobs. I have been in ministry. And around 33 is when I started going into ministry full-time again as a worship pastor and really learning that I did love the church. And then it was just four years ago, as this deconstruction movement started to take over, that I saw my own peers starting to not just fall away from the church, but leave Jesus. And my heart was breaking because I understand why that's happening. And when we look at the overall state of the church, but Raised to Stay was birthed really out of my grief of watching my generation leave their faith when really we don't have to leave our faith. We can detangle from religion without leaving our faith. And that's really what I'm praying we're going to start seeing in the next couple of years ahead. Yeah, that is, uh, and and so many. So your story is the story of so many people. It's it's you know I, I am seeing it amongst the. It, it hurts me because I'm seeing it very much amongst the younger generation, in our in Gen Z and the millennials and so forth, where it is just crushing. It's just crushing their their you know their idea of what they thought church should be, and now they're and I'm just you know very similar to your story where. You know, they just are beside themselves in the sense of saying, this is not what I signed up for. I, I didn't think this is how this was going to turn out. And uh, and it's such a tragedy um, for these young youth workers, especially with families, uh, you know, especially with wives and children and and are, you know, literally like your like your folks just being put out into the street and saying, you know, you're done. You know, and I've been in that situation as well, where, you know, uh, for, you know, not for, you know, any other reason other than, you know, you're not the right fit uh, here, you know, you're, you're, you know, that you say, hey, uh, you know, you can't say goodbye to the youth group. You can't, you know, you're just gone. You're just, you're just vanished. And, um, and I just think that, uh, that, you know, in telling this, your story, obviously your hope is to say, hey, you know what? You don't have to leave. You don't have to leave the church. You don't have to leave your faith and you don't have to leave the church in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, just attending. Was that hard for you, by the way? Was that hard for you to go back into a scenario, you know, where you started to enter back in and felt like you had your legs under you? 
Yeah, because I mean, Sundays were work days for our family growing up. I yes, mean, Sundays, yeah, Wednesdays, so. revivals. I mean, you were just always at the church. So to suddenly not have a reason to be in the church, I mean, it was really life altering um, in the way that it was psychologically really difficult to unwind from this life of it being um, a constant. And so being a teenager, I was you know involved in school stuff and everything. It was really easy just to disconnect and to say, well, the church hurt me. So therefore all churches must work like this. So I'm just not going to go back into that. Now, my family, you know, they found a church to go into and we slowly started to go back into it, but I went in with a different lens. I went in more skeptical. I went in um, a little bit more broken and, and less um, rose colored glasses on. I now went in expecting to get hurt. And that broke my heart, that that was my posture. Um, yeah. And that took many years. And I, I think it's important for all of us to know that, you know, healing is not linear and Jesus is certainly not in a hurry with our healing, but we tend to be in a hurry with our healing and with other people's healing. Yes. And so to give people that space to really try new churches and try different denominations and try different ways of, of going back into the church without serving, because a lot of our identity has been wrapped up in what we do for the church to just go as a congregant is a whole other hurdle that we have to get over. And so there's so many psychological and spiritual layers, which is why I recommend counseling to anyone who is starting to look to get back into it after getting hurt, because our minds and our hearts are so deeply connected in that disappointment. Yeah. And it's okay. I love in your book, when you, you talk about it, it's okay to go to therapy. It's okay to go to counseling. It's okay to, it's not, it, it, you know, in our day, right. That, that counseling or therapy was not highly recommended. You were just no, supposed it, to get it over was, it. Yeah. It was, you don't trust Jesus. If you need a counselor, you don't trust Jesus. And and there's such a lie woven into that statement because God uses professionals, health professionals with faith backgrounds to help connect the mind and the spirit. And I think there is something so beautiful about that, that we have Christians in, you know, uh, clinical settings to help bridge the gap between the secular, the secular and the sacred. Um, and, and that's a beautiful thing when God calls his people into those spaces to represent his kingdom. Um, so don't forsake God is not in competition with our medication or our therapist. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so, you know, I grew up Catholic and so uh, probably the, the, the greatest thing, one of the greatest things I learned there was that um, going to confession was good. You learned how to go to confession and, and you had somebody to talk to. And if I could, especially in uh, a lot of Pentecostal churches, I would put a confession booth somewhere where you listen, you just step in for a minute, say what you want to say and move on. Cause I think there's so many people that hold it in. And that's where the bitterness and that's where the a lot of things just start to, you know, rise up that we're we're holding in, you know, yes. while we're sitting in a church, even while we're, you know, while you're sitting in a church saying, oh, this is not going to, you know, this is not going to work. Or, you know, you're busy, you know, judging the worship or you're looking at the bulletin going, this could be this could be done better. You know, yes, all those things. Right. And a lot of people will ask me, where do I think we're failing as the church? And I and I don't love to sit in there because I think we're doing a lot of really good things. Yeah. Um, but I do believe that one of the areas we have failed as the church is our ability to have hard and holy conversations that don't condemn or make people feel guilty for their sin, which has been covered by the blood of Jesus. And so yeah. when we aren't ready to have the conversation, 
conversation with our people, they'll go to the world to have it. And the world is a ready receiver for those the church rejects or doesn't want to be in conversation with about these hot topics that our kids are dealing with, that our students are dealing with, that we're dealing with. If we can't have this confessional space in the church where we have trust and we have um, pastors who are willing to not judge, but to listen. If we can't be that, the world will be that. And that's why, especially as youth pastors, we have to be willing to sit in the hard tension of these conversations our kids are having at their cafeteria tables. And if we can't have them, they'll go to their friends. And we certainly don't want their friends to be their source of of any type of, of um, wisdom right now. Right, 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 right. And right. And, and, you know, I'm teaching right now with my students through first Timothy and about the importance of leadership and the importance of, you know, why, why, you know, why do we choose the leaders we have? And why is it important that these leaders, you know, are, have certain values and certain things that they practice and, and the feedback is good. I mean, I'm getting good feedback from the students on, you know, why these things are important. And, and, you know, of course they ask me things like, wait, you get paid? Wait, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Okay, let's not get excited. I'm part time. Okay, let's uh, let's not get let's not get excited here. Um, and, and in your in your book, you write. Uh, had you written this book earlier, which you did, technically you you wrote it early on, and I'm sure there was a lot of feelings in there <laughs> that were pretty raw, that were pretty uh, on the nose. And tell me that story that you you have in the book, uh, Raise the State, which is once again a fantastic book. Uh, and you and I think that what you say in there is so critically important because you received that manuscript back with a note attached. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Well, you know, all of us who grew up in the church, and I'm going to say all of us because I think that that's a it's a pretty big statement. But all of us who grew up in the church. I- I believe, grew up with a belief that we had a calling on our life at some point. We we knew we had a calling. And so when the church was ripped from me and I find myself in this public university, I could still feel that flame lit inside of me, but we know it can be used for good or bad, right? We know that the enemy can take it and twist it and and take the gifts that the Lord has given us and try to like pervert them with his bitterness and all of that. And I was feeling bitter. I was feeling lonely. I was feeling betrayed. So I sat down at my computer desk at my freshman dorm in Miami University of Ohio, and I start penning out a book called My Initials Are Not PK. And it was a scathing expose of everything that had happened to my family. In other words, I Taylor Swifted everyone. I mean, I'm naming (laughs) names. I am like telling scenarios and it is like I'm bleeding all over the body of Christ. Just, you know, telling it all. And I sent it to the only place I knew to send it because I was a church kid, which was James Dobson Focus on the family. I send this, this bad boy out snail mail before email. And I wait six months at my dorm mailroom waiting for this acceptance letter that they're going to publish this horrible manuscript that has been just written out of bitterness. And six months later, I get a a typed note. It was a rejection letter, of course, as it should have been. Thank you, James Dobson and Focus on the Family. (laughs) And at the bottom, somebody had taken the time to write in their handwriting, your story's not over yet. And I remember feeling so angry about that. Like, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. But what I realized is that person saw that if I could heal, if I could find the the Lord in this mess, if I could detangle from some of this junk that had been put on me, that I eventually would have a story that would be redeemed, a redemptive story of reconciliation. And so th- when I moved to Colorado Springs seven years ago to take a position at New Life Church, 
we're house hunting and I pull up to this giant mecca and it's focused on the family. It's literally focused on the family staring right at me. I hadn't thought of that book in years. And I heard the Lord say, we'll finish what we started here. This is what, this is where we're going to finish it. And do you know that last April I recorded my audiobook in the basement of focus on the family, the new redeemed version of <laughs> my initials are not PK. Um, I recorded the audiobook of Raised to Stay in the basement there. And it just felt like, I mean, that's 24 years later that the Lord brought this um, back around. And I'm a healed version of that person who was riding out of pain. And, and this is what happens. We so oftentimes quit before the miracle. And I'm just really grateful that throughout all of the hurt, because I've seen more hurt in my last 20 years, it didn't stop. Um, there's been more hurt. Um, but I'm just so grateful that the Lord didn't let me quit because he gave me the redeemed version of that book. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I imagine that was a, that was quite the moment. I mean, did it, did it just hit you like a ton of bricks? Were you just standing there going, what is happening? Yeah. I mean, I did a reel. I literally was like emotional. I was standing out there before I went in and just thought, wow, God, you really do turn all things for your good. You really do make beauty from our ashes and his mercies are new every day. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that even though people have disappointed me, people have still hurt me. There has still been church hurt in my life. There's been narcissistic spiritual abuse in my life in the last 20 years that even with all of that, he still remained the constant in my life. That's why raised to stay. That word stay has nothing to do with staying in a building. It has everything to do with John 15, which is abiding in Christ, remaining on the vine, abiding in him so that he can produce good fruit. And and this book is a product of remaining on the vine, of staying on the vine, even when everything in me has wanted to disconnect that lifeline has been what has allowed me to produce good fruit, even in my brokenness. Yeah. I, I, right. Right. The, the stay part, I think that's such a great point because I think that a lot of people might think when they read this, they go, Oh, I should stay in the church. I should stay in a toxic environment. I could, I should stay being abused. I should, I should be, you listen, it sounds like to me that we were both very good soldiers, right? We were good soldiers. We We learned, we learned how to, you know, protect the man. We learned how to have, you know, how to cover, you know, somebody's rear end. We we learned how to, you know, I remember, you know, books came out like um, Armor Bear, if you remember that, and how it was in some ways used as a tool to protect, like, hey, you got to be a good armor bear. You got to be, you know, you got to be the one that carries the armor. You got to protect, you know, all these people. You got to do these things. And, uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, when we when we talk about staying, it's about staying connected to Christ. It's about staying connected, not to the building, like you said, but in our relationship, which is so hard sometimes to differentiate at times because we love the body so much. We love we love the work. We love the people. We love the thing. And somehow that gets meshed in there that if one thing is ripped away, it feels like it's all ripped away. It's true. And, and, you know, we do it. We attach a perfect God to imperfect people. And and we, and, you know, we should, we should hold our leaders to higher standards. We should hold our pastors to a level of commitment that is different than we would a a sheep just attending or, or learning because pastors biblically and scripturally, we all will be held higher. Um, So it's absolutely normal to expect our pastors to behave, to expect our leadership to walk with the Lord, to see that integrity and character. And when we don't see it, we then have a choice to either say something 
or yeah. kind of continue to live in this dysfunction. And what I have learned in my 40s, and it's taken me this long, is that as a church staff member, as a youth pastor, as a worship pastor, as a children's pastor, if I see something in the church that is unhealthy, I am biblically obligated to say something. And even if it's a senior pastor who you think you know, is untouchable. We have to walk the line of honor and honesty in a way that allows the sheep to remain protected because there is such thing as unhealthy shepherds. And so I think a lot of us feel guilty, like touch not God's anointed one. I'm supposed to protect them. That is not what that scripture means. Anytime a shepherd, and we see this in Ezekiel, there are shepherds who will feed off the flock who will take their pelts that will not protect. And we have been put in these positions for such a time as this to be a protector of God's people. And sometimes that means reporting something that is unhealthy happening at the top to maintain the integrity of the rest of the organization. And that's a horrible place to be when God mm -hmm. trusts you with that. But we have to be better at walking in honor and honesty and not protecting uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Right. And I had a student, I was just thinking about that because I just had a student reach out to me, former student who read that, touched on God. So, so Paul, what does this mean? I said, I said, first of all, it probably doesn't mean what you, it doesn't mean what you think it means. And it doesn't mean what, what pastors want it to mean. <laughs> they, the, it means, first of all, I think it's only used like twice in the whole thing. It's not a, a running theme throughout scripture. It's, it's one verse. It's one thing dealing with David and Saul and and it's a whole thing. But I also see it, too, that youth pastors don't want to feel responsible, I think, for like bringing the whole house down. You know what I'm saying? They, they they see it and they go, oh, if this gets said, if I pull this, it's like playing Jenga. If I pull this one last block, it all comes down because now I have made a thing. I've created a problem. It's true. And you risk your job. You risk your income. You yeah. risk your reputation. You have no idea. If anybody, you know, I love in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit has fallen in the room and of, of the 120 in the room, you know, there's some skeptics, right? And yeah. so a couple of them are like, oh my goodness, they're drunk, right? And it says this, it says, Peter stands up with the backing of the other 11 and mm -hmm. begins through the prophet Joel to say, no, this is actually what's supposed to be happening. Here's where I see this in the scripture. And yeah. the thing that's powerful about that is that the other disciples did not leave Peter hanging. When he stands up to defend what God is doing in that moment, what the Holy Spirit is doing in that moment, it says he has the backing of the other 11. And I think a lot of youth pastors don't believe that if they were the ones to go to HR or go to leadership or the board and say, hey, there's something weird here. There's some strange fire, there's something not working out, that they would be left hanging, that the other staff would just let them go and sacrifice their lives on this altar of, you know, of reputation. And so we yeah. as a staff have to be a, a unified front of if we see something that's unhealthy, we're not going to leave our brother or sister hanging. We're going to go with them and say, we're in agreement with this. This is not biblical. This is not prophetic. This is not how the church should behave and not leave each other in the dark. And I think that that is something we've done. We've let people be sacrificial lambs rather than, you know, really kind of supporting one another as secondary staff and saying, yeah, we can't continue to serve here if the, she if the sheep are at risk. Yeah. And I think that's such a great message. Now, those that are listening, those that are watching who do sense that, who, who, you know, I'm on, you know, on youth ministry message boards and, 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 you know, on, on groups on Facebook and so forth, who are so desperately concerned for the body and so desperately concerned about 
you know, what somebody's doing in the church and how it's affecting discipleship and how it's affecting the people. And golly, it's such a, such a difficult, difficult place to be. But as you said, there's a, there's a certain, and I think this comes to, and you can, you can check me if I'm wrong, but I think youth pastors have to start thinking of themselves a little differently than just youth pastors. Absolutely. That, that they're not just, if they're part of a staff of people who's in charge of, who has been commissioned to make disciples as a, as a group, as part of a staff, as part of a team to do that, that youth pastors really have to see themselves differently. They can't just see themselves as some auxiliary ministry. They can't see themselves as a silo where I just do my job and I stay out of everybody else's way, that everything is so meshed together, that everything should be so meshed together that we can't separate ourselves from that difficult part of the journey that many youth pastors feel like they don't want to enter into. Sure. And, you know, the, if you look at like the world, for example, if you look at corporations and I've had jobs at high level sales where you do have hierarchy of power, there's a hierarchy of order and and that's fine. You know, in the pecking order where you rank and a lot of times your mindset of what you believe about yourself will deeply impact your success. Am I the low man on the totem pole? Am I just number 20 out of all of the, you know, you kind of uh, hear the enemy lie to you and tell you you're only this, you're just this. But in in the yeah. church. Who am I? Yeah, it should look different in the church. And yes, there's structural hierarchy. And yes, there are oversights. And there are those who are the, the head. And we respect and we honor that. But the way we speak to ourselves, the way that we believe uh, in the calling that God has placed on our lives, it matters. And when I wake up and I say, I'm just a worship leader, I'm just a youth pastor, I'm just that, we're really robbing the Lord of a allowing that full anointing to come over us and to operate in the giftings that we have been given, which are discernment, which is being able to walk into a room and say, that's not correct. And I am a pastor. And so I am also held responsible for protecting the sheep. I'm not just the associate. I'm not just the, the youth pastor. I have been assigned this mission I am filled with the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples, to protect the sheep. And because of that, because of that authority I have, not maybe influence, but the authority that I have under the name of Jesus Christ, I am going to do my very best to protect those God has entrusted to me. And sometimes that is reporting somebody who is over us. And we have authority to do that. And so I think the way we speak of ourselves, it has to be kingdom minded and not corporate minded. I am not in a corporation. I am in the kingdom and in the kingdom, there is no ladder. We are all equal at the ground, at the cross. And so there is a mindset shift that has to start. So we don't keep quitting because we don't feel like we're enough. The greatest advice I ever got from someone is sometimes you just got to let it burn. And if we have savior mentality, we're going to try to go in and save everyone. But sometimes when we've used our voice and we're not listened to, we just have to walk away. And that's a hard position to be in. Yeah. We're, and, and we're not called to save the church. No, but we are called. We don't have equal titles or equal roles, but we do have equal calling. Yes. To, re to respond to what is happening in our midst. Yes, that 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 we should step up. We should um, uh, take. You know, the word is also written to us that says, "Hey, we have to respond to things that that are not right around us." And whether you have an HR or don't have or a board or whatever you have, you know, use wisdom. Obviously, we're you know, you know, there's some young guys or young ladies who may be listening to this who are ready to go in there, you know, attack hell <laughs> with a with a water pistol. But right. we're saying, look, 
Use wisdom. Yeah. Use wisdom. Be be discerning, as you said. Be discerning yes. in those things, right? I know that youth pastors and some children's pastors, but youth pastors are are kind of the fiery. We 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 we. If there's a kerfuffle in the church, <laughs> it's normally emanating from 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 the youth department yes. somehow. Uh, and so in that same fashion, you know, that that maybe some maybe some other kerfuffles need to not just be like we drank a, a gallon of milk. You know, we tried to drink a gallon of milk on Wednesday night. Uh, you know, that that's one thing. But right. also the fact that we we also bring another set of skills to the table that says, listen, I'm called. I'm part of the body of Christ. I have a responsibility uh, to the word and to the Lord and to the people whom I whom I decide whom you hired me. Exactly. To watch over. Right. So, so I'm just taking my responsibility. And, and what, what I'm learning about youth pastors in particular and those who are in the children's ministry is that they would rather quit than contend for healthy culture because they don't believe their voice matters. And I would say, you know, for a lot of us, my encouragement is always you need to know your season. Are you having an Esther moment where you're going to go in and extend your scepter? And, and this is my, for such a time as this, is this a Moses where you're going to like, you know, part the sea and, and do it? Or are you a watchman on the wall? Who's called there to intercede for the church? Are you there to not necessarily bring immediate change, but to begin to pray over the culture of the church and pray over the leaders and, and be an agent of change behind the scenes. That isn't necessarily this big moment where you're going to blow things up, but where you're going to sit back and and really just learn the culture and learn what has been in your past at the church and take time. If you're a new leader, especially a young leader, the greatest thing you can do right now is remain hidden and remain in a secret place where you are praying, you're serving, you're doing what's required of you. And if you see things that grieve your heart, you see things that are not right, begin to pray and ask the Lord fast, get a mentor, find out what it is that you're discerning. And then when the Lord gives you permission, that is when you know you could go on behalf of whatever and walk that line of honor and honesty. But if you are new, this could take many years of of honing that gift of discernment to know how do I use my voice? When do I use my voice? And I can guarantee you, you're going to use your voice wrong a lot. And you'll learn, you'll learn. I've learned. I, I, I continue to learn. <laughs> you will do it wrong and you'll get it wrong. But there is, there needs to be grace in the house for the young ones that are learning how to use our voice. Like the young Josephs. Um, we don't need to be pushing people into pits. We just need to teach each other how to use what God's given us. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, and let me switch gears for just a second. Cause I think we have spoken to youth pastors and those uh, those that are listening who work with youth, that they, they have to have a different, they have to have a different mentality about themselves, about their role, about those things. But you say something in your book where you say you felt more loved, and this is maybe the post, uh, the, the post reaction of maybe what happens that if you do say something or you can't stay, you say, look, I'm not going to be the Moses or I'm not going to be Esther, but I can't stay here. This is, you know, uh, this is just too much for me. But you say there was a time when you felt more loved by strangers than your own church. And this is such a common theme that I hear uh, amongst people and myself. I've never had a sinner treat me as poorly as a Christian has ever in my whole life. Never. And, you know, what do you think is creating this um this 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 distance, this cognitive dissonance almost where you feel like you're in another world where you're living, you know, amongst people who maybe don't know the Lord, 
but boy, they sure do love and, and care for you in ways that the church never did. So what can youth workers learn from this um, when they feel so cut off from the rest of the body? I mean, I remember being a gym teacher. I was a gym teacher for 10 years. And I always said I would rather handle crazy uh, children than crazy Christians because, you know, crazy <laughs> children, they're supposed to be crazy, but crazy Christians, we're not supposed to be crazy, but we're all a little crazy. And, you know, I would, I would say this, that I wish we could blame it on social media. I wish we could blame it on some cultural phenomenon, but we see Paul being so brutally honest in second Corinthians about the reality of ministry. And he says in chapters 11 and 12, I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been flogged. I've been beaten. I've been lost in the wilderness. I've been lost at sea. And he says this, he says, I have been betrayed by my enemies and I have been betrayed by my brothers. And it says that so clearly in every translation and it's church hurt 101. Paul is telling us that this life of following Christ and being on mission with the great commission and loving God and loving people is going to be a lot of getting lost feeling forgotten and also being betrayed by the very people who are supposed to love us. And that was including Christians. That wasn't excluding. That was the religious people. That was um, the people that he was in partnership with, that he felt that betrayed by my brothers. That's telling us that. And so what I would say to you is that it is true when you choose this life of serving God and being in ministry, you are going to see the underbelly of a very raw and human church that God still chooses to use. And the beautiful part of this is that when we go into the world, you know, we go in with low expectation. So when people yeah. are kind to us in the world, we're like, great, awesome. Like nobody flicked me off in traffic. Nobody, you in know, traffic. cussed me out at the restaurant. Like, or they know, let me in in traffic. Or they let me in. Like, yeah, they like, hey, it was a good day in the world today. <laughs> um, you know, but when we go into the church, those expectations are high. And I've, I've learned to just look at my brothers and sisters and see them as, just the redeemed part of a broken world, knowing that the world is still in each of us. And I've had to just reconcile that the reason it hurts more is because I love so much and I love my church friends so much. And I love the church people so much. And when we love something, it can hurt us. And I'd rather get to heaven and be told I love too much than to get to heaven and be told I didn't love enough. And so the risk is is part of this reward. And I think that's why Paul kept getting back in the boat and he kept getting shipwrecked because he just kept getting back in um, because he knew what was waiting on the other side was worth it. And so, yes, we are going to hurt each other because that is just how fallen this world is. But everybody, we are the greatest risk. We will take the greatest risk on each other. And, and that's because love is costly. It is. It is costly. And and the the those youth pastors that you're listening, you're watching, you know, my, uh, and, and I, I would say this, and Natalie, you probably agree with this maybe, is that we romanticize as youth pastors what we think church is or what we think youth ministry is going to be. That it's all about kids. It's all about, you know, those Wednesday night meetings. It's all about camp. It's all about the retreat. And we should really expand our vision a little bit beyond the romanticism, beyond the what we what 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 our mindset is of what we really want that we're really entering into a whole nother ball game uh as far as church work is concerned it's it's true it's like we can't live on missions trips you know we can't live mountaintop to mountaintop and it would be really nice if we could just run event to event and run those um, those those magical moments where you know you're seeing salvation and you're seeing people saved and set free like 
how amazing would it be if ministry was just mountaintop to mountaintop? But what I've learned is the beauty of the Valley in ministry. And, and what happens in the Valley is that you find people there that you would never find on the mountaintop. You find people who their entire ministry is to sit in the sorrow with people. And, and so, you know, while the mountaintops are great, there is a beautiful Jesus who sits in that Valley and he teaches us something. And so we can't forsake the, the, the lower places, the sunken places, because it's really the dark soul, you know, the, the dark soul of the night where we find our worship, we find uh, what we're really made of. And I always say, don't ask for the gift. If you don't have the grit, because there is a lot of grit involved in picking up our cross and following Jesus. It is. And it is. And and for those that are watching, those that are listening, just remember that it's about God redeeming what we think. And I, I know I've gone through it where what I thought was going to be did not happen. But God, in his graciousness, it, it's, it's more about your relationship with Jesus than it is your relationship to the church or to the youth ministry or to the ministry in general. And if you can keep that perspective, that that really it's about growing you. It's not about growing your youth group. It's about it's about your journey with Jesus. If you can keep that in mind, you're going to fare better <laughs> than if you keep the other mindset of the magic moments, the mountaintops, the mountaintops. And I and I I just love that um, that that's that's the perspective that uh, that you come from. As we start to wrap up here a little bit, uh, I love the quote: "Self-preservation is not a fruit of the spirit." So what do you mean by that? And how can youth pastors navigate their own feelings of self-preservation as well as navigate when they are the victims of someone else's self-preservation? It is a daily surrender to the Lord to not try to protect <clears throat> protect ourselves. Like we are constantly uh, in fight or flight a lot of times in ministry because we are in the trenches of the hard work. Again, it's not the mountaintops. We're sitting in staff meetings. We're getting the emails from parents. We're hearing what's happening in the schools. We we feel the brokenness of the world, and it's so easy to start to self preserve. Like, oh my goodness, you know they fired so and so for this, and they're gonna fire me next. And I'm watching what my friends are ha- what's happening to my friends. And I don't want that to happen to me, or I saw this happen to my parents. I don't want that. So we start to put these walls up against our hearts that don't allow us to receive accountability. We don't uh, receive, you know, constructive criticism. We start to feel like if we let our wall down at all, that we're the next one to go, the other shoes going to drop. And so we're living in this fight or flight survival mode all the time. And what we have to remember is that it's not just us living that it's also our peers. It's also our leaders who the enemy is trying to get us all worked up so we can't hear the voice of God. We can't discern what needs to be discerned. And when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, there are fruits of the Spirit that come into our lives that show us we're abiding in Christ. That's joy, love, peace, self-control. I mean, we know what those are, but we've added self-preservation in that as if we're trying to help ourselves, you know, and really we also become products of leaders who are living in self-preservation mode. And so my suggestion to all of us is to allow the Holy Spirit to break down some of those walls that we've put around our hearts to keep us from receiving accountability, uh, receiving love from people who we're afraid are going to hurt us and take the risk at letting those fruits of the spirit be bigger and louder and more productive than the fruits of this world that teach us to fear everything and to worry about everything. And when we take a job to open our hands up to the Lord and say, be it unto me, as you have said, it's your ministry. It's your, it's your people. It's your sheep. And you've chosen to 
use me. And whether it's for a year or it's for 20 years, you have my heart, you have my calling. It's always been yours and living a life of surrender rather than just trying to hold on to what God has given us. And a lot of social media perpetuates this and look what the people down the street are getting look what your friends are getting. And we start to worry, we're not going to get enough. And really it's a life of just be it unto me, as you have said, open-handed. Yeah. I love uh, when Jesus is going back to see Lazarus and the disciples are like, well, let's head off with him to go and die. Shall we? Let's just uh, no self-preservation. Let's just go ahead. <laughs> just walk right into it. Go ahead. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. But as we close up, this October is traditionally Pastors Appreciation Month. How do you think pastors can uh, lead pastors, lead uh, and congregations appreciate their staff all year long, not just once a month, but how can they do this on a regular basis? I feel like handwritten notes and doing little breakfast for your staff and doing things that bring them together and allow them to not feel so alone, I think is such a massive part of church culture and staff, especially when you're trying to show them that you appreciate all of the work they're doing. You know, it it goes really far to take your staff and go putt-putt or to, you know, spend that time well spent with not giving them more work, not giving them anything else to have to follow up on, but really looking at them and saying, I see you, I see what you're doing, and I want us all to go play together. We're going to work hard and we're going to play hard and we're going to be the staff that when people look at us, it's going to be cohesive. It's going to be a family. They're going to see that we don't, you know, value one group of staff over the other. They're going to see us as all working hard, but also they're going to see us playing. One of my favorite things that New Life did when I was on staff out there is we would take Christmas and go to the um, arcade where they had bowling and, and our church people would be there like on a regular day and see the staff playing. And there was something is so beautiful about watching the staff laugh together. And so I just think anytime pastors can really pull their staff in together and see them over the course of the year, you have no idea how far that will go. Generosity and, and just a lot of joy. Yeah. And seeing, and once again, a great testimony and a witness to your congregation that says, hey, we're in this together. We don't just work hard, but you're going to see us in different arenas together. Yes. Uh, and that uh, don't don't try to divide us. Because right. we're we're in, we're one here. Yes. We're we're in it to win it. Yeah. So now I'll let you wrap up kind of the way you want to wrap up. You know, uh, of course, you know, if you want to pray for youth workers, if you want to read, I know we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, that you had a, a black box. By the way, if you don't follow uh, Natalie on uh, Instagram and everywhere, she has some great, great thoughts that she puts in these black boxes. She does some great lives you can jump in on. Uh, that's at Raise to Stay on Instagram, I believe. And uh, but I'll I'll let you wrap up our conversation as to how you wanna how you wanna leave youth workers today. Last October for Pastor Appreciation Month, I did a, a series of black boxes for all the different pastors of churches, and I wrote one specifically for you guys, for the youth leaders and the student pastors. And so I'd love to read those over you as we close out today. Um, so may you know, youth pastors and student leaders who shepherd the adolescent sheep. It's an uncommon anointing to pastor moments that involve hormones and holiness, moodiness and godliness, paranoid parents and angsty teens. You have to learn to pivot quickly and approach quietly. And it's a long road to trust and an even longer one to relationship. You said yes to be what you needed when you were walking high school halls and sitting at junior high cafeteria tables with the devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. When you were desperate for a Jesus you could know and a community you could belong to. And you have committed to late nights and gross games 
games and long weekends because you know it's an unconventional and inconvenient that you'll begin to build relational equity with a generation tired of all talk and no action. You know you're up against a culture of cancellation, convenience, and constant identity crisis that fights against you every single day, so you show up for the unexpected, ready to walk with the confused, lonely, and lost. We see you fighting for our kids, contending for our children, and we're for you. We wouldn't want uh, we wouldn't want to raise our arrows without you. You help us in their precision as we aim them towards a mark we know they are surely to miss time to time. Thank you for coming to their games, taking them to coffee, discipling, mentoring, and showing up when our kids are shutting down. Thank you for being present and bringing with you the presence of God into our schools and communities. You aren't entertainment. You aren't the cool, older spiritual sibling. You are warriors who carry a unique ability to serve where you are scared, and you do it with fresh revelation and impartation. Don't quit. Even when you feel most unseen and exhausted, we are with you holding up your arms. It gives me chills to hear it again. I remember reading that last year, and that really just spoke to me um, on that level of of uh, of encouragement. And I hope, youth workers, that you were encouraged today. Natalie, share with everybody how they can get a hold of you, how they can follow you, how they can uh, get Raised to Stay. It's a fantastic book, a great read. Let them know where they can get a hold of you. Our community is booming over on Instagram at Raise to Stay. And then we also have a Facebook page called Raise to Stay that's private where people can share a little bit more information. And then at Natalie Runyon is my public one. And then the book is found wherever books are sold, Amazon, Target, no, not Target, Walmart. Uh, we've got Barnes and Noble, Christian Book. So we're kind of just trying to get it out there. And I think that Mardell's just started carrying it as well. So super proud. Uh, and Natalie, we are super proud of you. We want to thank you, <laughs> thank you. as youth workers for um, speaking into some lonely places uh, that youth pastors live uh, mm-hmm. because sometimes there's no voice for them except the voice of God, which sometimes we have a little hard time hearing. So it's nice when somebody embraces that and can speak into the void for us and let us know that, hey, we're not alone. We're not uh, we're not as crushed as we think we are right. and that there's hope in the future. So thank Amen. you, Natalie, for serving and thank you for uh, speaking to the body and letting us know uh, that we can stay. Thank you so much. I don't know about you, youth pastors, but it just blessed me just to hear her share with us today because she's speaking to me as much as she's speaking to you. These are questions that are on my heart. These are questions that I wrestle with. Even after 30 plus years of youth ministry, these are questions I still have to wrestle with and I have to dig into the scriptures and I have to constantly submit and surrender. And it is an ongoing, growing, maturing process for all of us. If you are interested in connecting with Natalie, all her socials will be down in the show notes, as well as a link to her book, Raised to Stay, Persevering in Ministry When You Have a Million Reasons to Walk Away. And don't forget, youth pastors, if nobody has told you lately that you're doing a good job, let me tell you, you're doing a good job and you're only going to get better. And we'll see you all in the next episode.